Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. My next guest is Gary Gusainov. He is an entrepreneur from the US and has a fascinating story that he's going to share. A couple of the key things I think you're going to get out of this episode is that you know, Gary has built some very large companies, some with multiple thousands of employees. You know, we're talking hundreds of millions of turnover across his various companies. Yeah, this is a very successful guy. And what he's going to walk through in this episode is some of the thinking you need to put around your ideas to help you determine whether or not to be even launching your business. He's talking through some of those key elements of how to grow and drive a business. Everything from structures to culture are going to be covered in this issue. And he really delves into this whole organic growth versus growth via acquisition. And I really love this topic because Gary's a guy who's out there doing it very successfully. And he's got some fantastic advice for business owners who are looking to build their business and take it to the next level. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. This It's packed full of gold nuggets. This is Gary Gusanov. Hi, Gary. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thank you for having me, Simon. My pleasure indeed. Um, appreciate you making the time to come on and uh, share your story and, and talk to us a little bit about, um, well, what you're doing in your business. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm really keen to unpack um, the story, that, you know, around how you've grown the sort of business. I don't want to say the word empire. It sounds a little bit sort of, you know, a bit odd, but it's sort of, you, you know, you've got so many businesses that you're involved in. It's just a, it sounds like a fascinating story. So, um Gary, just just for um, the audience, obviously the first time they're going to be hearing from you, but um, you know, one of your core businesses is Real Defense that's involved in cyber, which you know, geez, you can't get a more topical uh, industry issue uh, to discuss these days. But maybe you could kick off with a little bit of an introduction for us all, and just a little bit of your background and kind of what led to you sort of starting that business. Sure. Uh, yeah, my background is in direct response advertising, so I started an agency in, in the late '90s. Uh, right as the internet was evolving and it was the first one of the first performance marketing companies in the United States. Our clients were lots of Silicon Valley uh, venture-backed startups to established companies like Disney, Sony, Wells Fargo Bank. And uh, in 2003, I realized that it was time to sort of migrate to something bigger and uh, better opportunities that came around. And I sold my interest in my marketing company. And I started, started a company called Cyber Defender. The Cyber Defender was a consumer privacy and security company, mostly focused on security. And we uh, went public on NASDAQ. Uh, company was growing really fast, so profitable year one, uh, grew revenues to about $100 million. And then in, in the 2011, I left the company. I uh, went to help a friend in Silicon Valley with a company called Anchor Free. It's a uh, biggest VPN company in the world, 650 million users. Uh, raised uh, $60 million from Goldman Sachs, ultimately sold the company uh, to another uh, security company. 
And then uh, in 2015, I co-founded a company called Incast, a influencer marketing company. And we're one of our biggest clients was ByteDance, which you can imagine who that is, uh, the, the people behind TikTok. And we uh, ended up bringing them to the United States. And that was pretty pretty exciting uh, opportunity as well. And so my background is uh, marketing, customer acquisition, and cybersecurity. Those are two areas that I know really well. I'm also on the boards, uh, an investor in different companies, uh, ranging from crypto to healthcare. And so I, I have a diverse background in business operations, uh, raising capital, raised close to a billion dollars in, in working capital uh, through my career. and, and um, have understand all facets of an organization from formation to exit it's and and hence why you're, you're a brilliant guest on this show because you know we talk about buying growing selling companies i mean it's very much a cycle you know we see that you know some people only do one one round on the merry-go-round others do it many 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 times and so you know i love the fact that you're able to kind of speak from those different perspectives um can I ask a question? I mean, look, for a guy who's you know clearly entrepreneurial and you've you've had enormous success in a lot of ventures, where do you think that kind of entrepreneurial spirit comes from? I mean, you know, were your parents in business for themselves, or like what, what was how, how did what was your early sort of view on being a business owner? Yeah, it's a good question. My dad was a research scientist, so it has nothing to do with with business at all. Um, I, uh, you know, and my mom was a principal of a school, so very contrary sort of views to uh, entrepreneurship and business ownership. Um, I think it had to do with more just uh, being exploratory in, in nature and curious, uh, you know, in terms of my personality, I just like to discover and, and, and explore. Um, and also like the monetary compensation and the freedoms that comes along with it. And so it's not just about acquiring assets, but it's about a big, having the ability to do things that you want to do when you want to do them. And so you can't do that when you're employed. And, um, you know, business, it's not just about, you know, earning and then and then keeping and then buying something expensive. That's not why you should be in business. And so uh, I've learned that over time. It's not something you learn right away, but it's those are the reasons. It's not something in my DNA. In fact, nothing in my DNA says I should be a business owner. <laughs> it's the opposite. Probably go to school and get a PhD and work for some research lab, but that's in my DNA. Yeah, yeah. But you know what, you, you did make a comment before about being curious in nature and, you know, clearly your father is a, you know, somebody who's into research. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I think that that curious mind obviously drives that um, desire to research and learn, and 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 clearly that part of it has has you know been handed to you or tra transferred over to you as well. How important is that 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 curious mind though? I mean, it's not just about going into business, right? I mean, even every single business day, you know, business problems. Business to me is constantly about solving problems with limited resources. <laughs> um, strikes me that you need a curious mind to explore that, right? <laughs> I, I think you have to always ask. Uh, a question of why you're doing something, not how, but why. Ask the, ask the why first and then ask the how. And a lot of business owners do the opposite. And so if you, if you listen to a lot of people talk about a new venture that they're starting or a new business idea that they have, they engage in conversation about execution first. They talk about, well, I'm going to call an attorney and then I'm going to get a patent filed and I'm going to be the first one to do it when in fact 
a hundred other people have thought about the same idea at the same time. And so there's this conversation about like how to do it instead of talking about why you're doing it. The why you're doing it could be the reasons we just talked about, which is you know being an entrepreneur, being a, a business owner. But after you've answered yes to that question, and hopefully it's a yes and not a maybe, is that what are you gonna like? What? Why are you doing the business you're doing? Why are you opening up a restaurant? Why are you opening up a, a SaaS company? And so answer that that question first, and and then you get, you'll see the path on how to get there. Right? Um, it sounds simple and trivial, but it's not. It's actually the hardest question to answer. You know, and 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 I, I've always asked, no matter what I do in business, no matter what project. That, that my team takes on and whatever company we're buying, it's always, why are we doing it? And if the answer is not clear, then we're not going to do it. It's, a, it's an interesting um, concept, I think, you know, this, and, and, and for what it's worth, I mean, I agree with you, you know, the, the why is actually the fuel that drives you through the challenges you, you inevitably will have in business. But I'm, I'm curious in your perspective on this. It's, I've chatted to a lot of business owners over the years and not every business owner has this fundamental, deep, purposeful why, you know, I'm here to change the world, I'm here to do this sort of stuff. You know, sometimes that why is simply, I can see an opportunity, I think this would be fun, I'm kind of, you know, and I, I, and I guess I'm, I'm curious in your own circumstances, like, you know, when you're tapping your why for the different ventures you go into, do you, do you see that why being on a broad spectrum or is there always this sort of deep fundamental values-based why that you, you, you look for? Well, I, I, I think you're, you're not going to particularly, most businesses are not, most individuals are not going to change the world. They can impact the world, but not change it. I think it's naive to believe that you can in most instances and in very few instances that you could do it, it requires significant amount of resources and luck and consequence and relationships and all those things have to come together at the same time to form this momentum that it requires you to have for you to have and most people don't even know when they do get to that point and we do have the right resources and opportunities don't know what to do with it elon musk is a perfect example of that look at this this is one of the few people in the world that has everything that he has everything resources know-how technology uh, capital contacts and he chooses to use it you know sometimes in the wrong way and to his own detriment and to the detriment of people around him right and so I, I think we you know you got to bring it down to like a more sort of palatable level and, and ask yourself those questions and not so be preoccupied with the big picture of helping the world but incrementally changing your circumstances for example right your family circumstances your friends your colleagues, your employees, right? And so if you just get good at that, the rest is going to be much easier for you to comprehend and deal with. If you're focused on the big, this, this massive undertaking, like how to move a mountain, how to change, you know, healthcare in the world and like these big things. And it's, they're so big that you can't wrap your hands, your head around it. And then you're focused on the wrong directive because you're trying to figure something really big out. And I, and I think, there's 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 been a movement around the world where like where entrepreneurship is driven in that direction and i think it's misleading to entrepreneurs and they get these big ideas and they don't know how to execute against them and they just get stuck in this mud where they're just moving really slow not being driven in the right direction and so i would stay away from that i, I would say don't worry about that until it becomes obvious to you 
if you've gotten to some level of success and you have capital saved and you and you in your in your 50s hopefully because you've accomplished a lot already in life personal life and and financial life or maybe you're younger hopefully then sit down and think about how you want to impact the world you know do you want to go to ukraine and fight in the war or do you want to build uh satellite systems that protect people against uh you know uh weather movements that are that are that could be deadly right that's that's impactful and figure that out right but do that when you're later you know more accomplished yeah i look i love the idea and it and i think it's great advice of you know having a focus that you can get your arms or your mind around initially right it's i i think like everything you know it's big, big goals are achieved by chunking them down into manageable parts and you know it's um my uh my son was recently in hospital and recovering from an operation and I was explaining to him that to try to climb the mountain, you can't just look at the peak because that will overwhelm you. You just need to look at it in manageable pieces. So at the moment, it's for you, I said, it's day by day. And and during that day, like you don't climb straight up a mountain, there's ups and then you go down a little bit and it goes up a bit more. And it's, you know, to try to make that progress. But if you can't see the end of your current run or stretch or where you're trying to get to, that that's where the mind boggles and you become overwhelmed and it's you know and, and people freeze you can't you can't execute right because you don't know what to work on next right and, and and a lot of people don't know how to multitask and multitasking doesn't mean that you're doing a bunch of things at the same time multitasking means you're accomplishing a lot of things at the same time and so busy work is not multitasking and and i think uh, we have to sometimes pull back our uh, our you know activities and say what's the priority uh, you know, how do I prioritize my day? I prioritize my projects so that I'm not doing lots of things that are not being that are not being productive at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You remind me of a, a, a good friend of mine, John. He's, uh, you know, he's he said to me so many times. You know, if you have 50 priorities, you have no priorities. <laughs> so, you know, what are the top three things you're going to work on, or you know, preferably top one or two maybe. But um, <laughs> Yeah, like how do you how do you narrow down the focus into the more valuable items? Um, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and 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 actually in business that's really important. Uh, you know, I see management teams that are, and boards that I'm on this constant battle for priorities, and it's some nice priorities between teams within the company. Uh, priorities for a company in terms of its, you know, is it revenue? Is it profit? Is it resources? Is it product? Like where where do we spend our time? And everything has to be quantified if it needs to be prioritized if it can't be quantified it should be prioritized right because if you don't know what the what the effort is you don't know what the outcome is going to be or if it's economic or some other then it's not a priority yeah and, and it seems simple but it's actually not because a lot of a lot of business owners management teams don't know how to get to that level of thinking it's everything is a priority to them you know yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, once again, over the years, I've dealt with so many different businesses and business owners or predominantly private businesses and the amount of times, even good good companies, they, you know, turning over 20, 30, 40, 50 million. And we've gone in there and seen that they don't have any kind of plan with measurable outcomes. There's no dashboard or balanced scorecard, whatever tool you want to use, I don't really care, as long as you've defined specifically what you're trying to achieve and you've been able to break it down into some high-level measurable goals. And it just fascinates me how often I see businesses running that have no direction around that stuff. 
Right. And and I think many of them, many of them family-run businesses too, they're just kind of in the rhythm of this is kind of how we do things around here. And, um, you know, they just lack that focus. Right. Well, it's, it's you know, you can't expect that sometimes with new, newly minted business owners, right? Especially if For they're sure. tech. And they've never had the experience. So you, you have someone in their 20s, they move to Silicon Valley, raise some money or any big city for that matter. And suddenly they're, you know, thrown into the pit and they have to figure out the way how to, how to, how to build a, you know, an enterprise. And so it's, it's, it's uh, uh, highly likely that they're not going to know, the, you know, how to, how to do that. But if they have a good product, these things tend to solve themselves over time because if you have a really good product, consumers will know that or your customers will know that and they'll pay you. And so all you're going to be focused on is how to make that product even better, how to protect against, you know, uh, 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 co competition and how to create a bigger moat around yourself. And I would rather focus on that. You know, if, if I can have a business and all I got to focus on is my product because the sales are coming in organically, that's the, you know, the holy grail to success. But Unfortunately, that's not reality for 99% of the businesses out there. They have to spend money on advertising, marketing, public relations, you know, sales infrastructure, and because sales don't come to them, you know, organically. So um, that model works good. We have a freemium or some sort of a free giveaway very well, but outside of that, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious in your thoughts on something. It's, it's you know, for those listening to this, um, you know, some of them may be running a business already or thinking about their next business. I'm, I'm curious, you touched on earlier about kind of what is the formula of the ingredients for success. Um, and, and I think I, I've seen a lot of business owners who kind of fall into their business, you know, hey, I was good at architecture. So I eventually went and started my own architecture practice, or I'm good at building widgets. So now I do it for myself. Or um, which strikes me as being more of the sort of bottom-up kind of thinking, I'm already out there doing this and therefore maybe I should keep doing more of it for myself. But so often, and I think you touched on it with your businesses, you know, marketing and things like that when the internet was taking off, you've gotten into cyber, which strikes me as the, these really big macro waves that are coming. And, you know, I guess I'm interested in your perspective around what's the right blend here between my own personal skill sets and just seeing the market opportunity for what it is. You know, is there a blend there or an approach that you, you take? Are you saying that how, how do you figure out which business to build, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, there's lots of ways to think about it. I think there are the more riskier ways and less riskier ways, more conservative, you know, and more um, liberal way to look at it. So uh, there are investors out there who, who prefer one or the other. I'm more on the conservative side. I used to be more on the risk-taking risk side where I wanted to do something new. Um, and I've given up that idea because I believe that I'm better at doing something that already works and making it better rather than starting something from scratch. That's just my view doesn't mean that you should do that or anyone should do that. But if you were to sit down and say, okay, I've got a little bit of money, whether it's from you know friends or family or I have saved it or I sold the company, whatever, and I want to do something brand new, I would look at trends that are going on in your, in your city, in your country, in the world, and understand those trends as they relate to 
um, an industry that, that that trend is in, because it's most likely not a new industry. It's most likely inside of an industry, but it's becoming something is growing somewhere, right? And so I subscribe to some newsletter that, letters, some newsletters that give me that kind of data that tell me where there's spikes in activity. That activity comes from Reddit. That activity comes from uh, all kinds of different social uh, media platforms where there's discussions about some, some subject matter. Obviously, Google, you see search keywords, you know, going up in certain categories, and you'll see that that's a trend. But also quantifying that trend. How does that relate to uh, commercial activity? Because if someone's talking about a news item, that's not a commercial trend. That's just a popular subject matter for a very short period of time. Then they stop talking about it. But if there is a, a commercial trend, um, then, then you need to get on top of it and see if you can get something done in that category. But you should have a background in it. Like if you're seeing people buying and selling airplanes and jets and you are from, you know, you're an architect, like that might not be your business, right? Don't, don't think that you're going to be an expert in selling airplanes. And so um, focus on what you know. So if you're in the restaurant business and you're seeing some new micro trend happening in some food category and you happen to understand food and dynamics of supply chain and how to make them profitable, by all means, jump into it and, and, and figure out a way how to build it. Investors like that. They want to see continuity in your thinking like you're, you're an expert you went to school for something and then you became a, a business owner in that category then you raising money in another business that's in the same category so you know it doesn't mean that you can't do it like did elon musk have experience building rocket ships when he was in high school probably not right but you know look what happened right so it it, it really depends on your resources if you're contributing a lot of your own capital then the argument is anything is possible. Just invest your own money, and and there you have it. You have your company, right? So, uh, but but if you're looking at success, like measurement of success and what's likely to succeed and less likely to succeed, what I said first was it's more likely to succeed, and what I said last is less likely to succeed, right? So, uh, you know, derive your own conclusion. If you want to go take a lot of risk, go with the punches because it's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And if you have enough capital, if you have enough patience, then you can always get there. Okay. Now, if you want to go populate the moon and you want to be the first citizen there, you want to build a ship that goes there and allows you to live on the moon, you're going to have to wait a long time. If you want to build, you know, something that allows uh, others to do that, so maybe some kind of a component for uh, space travel, then maybe it's more likely to happen in, in, you know, in your lifetime. And so it just depends on the spectrum of, of time that you have to build it. And so um, the good news is that there's lots of data out there. Just do a little research on trends. There's a ton of information out there that gives you that. So, uh, but definitely do research. I, 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 I'm very skeptical of people that don't know, particularly when we make an investment to sell into a company where the founders don't know their space, like they don't know the, the, the trends and don't know who the competition is. And, and, and when, when I see something that says, like, we have no competition, that's a problem, right? Because you're maybe doing something that nobody wants or unless you've uncovered some gold mine somewhere. And that's unlikely in most cases. It's very unlikely. So, yeah. As, as an investor, Gary, I'm, um, I'm sure you must have seen this sort of stuff before. I, I know I've seen it plenty of times too, but... You know, when you see this 
uh, would-be entrepreneur, a startup, you know, they've got an, a new idea. Uh, personally, I don't think there are any new ideas. I just think there's variations of old ideas right. um, personally. But but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I see a lot of people who still go out there with this mentality of if we build it, they will come. <laughs> um, you know, if we just build the product, man, it's going to be great. <laughs> you know, it's. Do, do you have any thoughts about that approach? Well, again, it depends on what what area of you know what industry you're in and how do you create demand. And so, demand creation is is extremely difficult in in every business, any category where there's no demand and you're creating demand, right? And so, uh, we have in my company, we've had a few products where we would go to partners and would say why don't you resell our product? And our partners would say, well, there's no demand for your product. The answer to that is, we're gonna help you create demand and here's how. And we illustrate the process, right? We show them with numbers and 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 uh, and, and, and bunch of like, supporting documentation, but that's because we have experience doing it. Well, I was gonna say, and I mean, I think in that example, you're already selling this product to somebody else. You have proven that there is demand or there's a need and the market has right. responded to it. Right. You know, I, I, I find too many people and I've, I've seen too many presentations where people are pitching investors for money and saying, listen, I know this is different. It's, it's a completely different, there's nothing like it out there. Maybe that's the case. And if we just build it, you know, like, and, and we throw some marketing at this, people are going to come, they're going to want to buy this, you know, and it's, I, I personally, as a, as an investor and as somebody who's run a few different businesses, I've, I always look at that and think, you've, you've lost me. If you're telling me you just need my money to throw it at marketing and try to find some customers, man, I'm out because like, I want to see that people are already buying this. I want to see people that, that it's proven in the market. It's got some track record, you know, that, that really what we're just doing is putting some fuel in a in an engine that's already running <laughs> right and so it's yeah i don't know i don't know if you see stuff like that but <laughs> yeah we do and and, and generally we, we don't we won't invest into a new venture like that we just that's not our business we, we invest into ventures that have been uh in, in existence and have a track record of profitability um but if you're an event if you're a venture capitalist or if you're a uh, uh, an angel investor and someone comes to you with such ideas you got to really think it through you, you Sometimes crazy ideas work, you know. I, who's to say that someone's crazy, crazy device that's supposed to do whatever isn't the next big, big thing, right? Unless, unless you you predict, you can predict the future, and none of us can do that. And so you have to look at that with with that kind of a point of perspective. But the founders also can look at it and say, if this didn't work out, this venture, we can always pivot, and we could pivot towards this. And if we pivoted here, we know there's a market here and we can be successful doing this. So we're not going to lose your money. We're going to go for the you know, moonshot idea and we're going to execute. And we, we, need, we have all the right resources, the right infrastructure, the right talent. But if it doesn't work, we're going to go this way. And we think this could work also. and This could work also. And if they created that kind of a roadmap, I think investors could feel, feel comfortable that they're not throwing the money away. But there are funds out there. There are investors that are in the venture capital space who only invest into big, crazy ideas. They like the stuff. You go to them and you say, I'm going to build a bridge from here to Mars and we're going to have cars going back and forth. And they'll give you money because they think that you maybe you have a new uh, metal that you've created that can withstand 
you know, that kind of distance. It, it, it sounds crazy, but there are people talking about this kind of stuff. There are people talking about building a lift that goes from here to the moon. This is this has been a discussion for you know 20, 30 years of companies coming up with plans, architects actually drawing the stuff out and showing how it can be done. And there are financiers who are putting money into this kind of stuff. It's not crazy. It's a reality. So you yeah. you can do it. I just you know I wouldn't do it. I would because I I don't know how to do it. And so I I would stick to things that I know how to do and make money from it. Yeah, fair enough. Come come back to the sort of practical side, I guess, of growing a business. I mean, you you've grown businesses organically. You've done numerous acquisitions. Have you got much thoughts around this concept of build versus buy, or you know, grow organically versus acquisitions? Sure, uh, absolutely. In fact, I would say that if you're a business doing five, ten million dollars in revenue, and you are in the category where customer acquisition is expensive, and I would say more than hundred dollars, you're going to benefit more by buying a business than getting that same customer through direct response marketing or some other marketing channel. And the reason is many multiple fold. One is that there's a lot of risk investing into marketing when your customer acquisition costs are high on a per unit basis. So uh, if it doesn't work out, the money's lost, right? You're not gonna go back to the advertising platform and say, oh, I want my money back because your ads didn't convert. That doesn't work. So but that's that's number one. Number two is that your, your time that it takes to get to the same level of scale. So if you wanna double your business, that can take you five years, 10 years, if you're not financed and you're doing it organically. If you buy a business, you can have that same growth within months after acquisition. You can have financing from a partner, from a financing partner, a bank or a, 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 an institution, much, much faster for an acquisition than you would get for growth capital. It's much easier to get that financing because banks that finance this or, or financial uh, institutions that finance acquisitions can quantify the return on their capital much easier with an acquisition than they would if you were just to raise growth money. And so, um, and, and then you're gaining staff and technology and resources. You're, you're getting you know, synergies from that. If you have too many people that do the same thing, you, you downsize. If you have technology infrastructure that's doing the same thing with two companies, you get rid of it because you don't need it. Your, your profitability goes up. Your, your reach expands. You, have, you can cross market to each other's customer bases. Like, there's numerous benefits, synergies, that creative revenue profitability. So, Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. What, what would you say to the business owners out there, though, that um, you know, they're, they're, they're saying to themselves right now hearing this, oh, look, but I've never done a transaction. I don't know how to do it. Surely, you know, that, that they see the unknown as being quite risky themselves. Well, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, don't do it. Okay, that's the first advice I would tell you. Uh, the second is hire a professional that uh, understands mergers and acquisitions, not a friend who, who has done one deal before or some attorney who says they know how to do the legal documents. That's not, you need an M&A advisor, a, a professional firm that has lawyers, accountants, all the resources you need to, to, to bring to the table and understands how to negotiate these types of deals, has done a lot of them, maybe hundreds under their belt, and knows the nuances related to an acquisition. There's so many. There are hundreds of ways to get ripped off, hundreds of ways not to close, hundreds of ways to lose money and then get sued or end up suing someone else. You'd be amazed how often this happens. Like 
15, 20% of all MA transactions end up in a lawsuit. So you got to be really careful and don't do it if you're not comfortable doing it. If you think it's too risky and you're afraid that something's going to go wrong, just don't do it and wait till the moment when you're not afraid of these things. And so uh, it's not for everyone. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It's um, and, and like anything, you know, like you said before, it's it's about having the people around you. You know, if if you're about to face a, a big walk through the jungle and there's all sorts of scary things in there and you've never been there before, of course you're going to be terrified. But if you've got a guide who knows the track and knows every branch to duck under and every pothole to step over, you know, it becomes a lot easier when somebody can guide you through it and point out the risks and help you m- mitigate them. Right. Right, and and that's like that with anything. You know, you're. you're any, any kind of venture you step into, you've got some kind of guardrails around you to get you through it. But um, M&A is, is fairly complex. And, and no matter how big the deal, if you're buying a $200,000 business or $200 million business, same thing in terms of due diligence and risks involved and you're buying someone else's assets, you don't know how they got there. You don't know them if you know them personally. And so uh, I try to do business in, in our M&A environment. I try to do business only with people that I already know and have an existing relationship with from the past, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I know the companies are real, that their assets are real, that the management teams are real, investors are real. And I try to buy companies that are carve-outs from larger companies. So you got billion-dollar business that wants to sell a $10 million business. Those deals are, are less riskier because a big company with lots of lawyers has looked at this asset and said, everything's okay. We can sell it and they don't want to get sued, so they'll protect themselves, right? And so you want that ideally. Have a lot of friends in the industry research your spe- like your space. If you're you know, a car dealer, talk to other car dealer owners and see what they're doing. And maybe they're exiting and they're retiring or moving or whatever the circumstances are. And you want to be right there when that asset becomes available for sale and not let them go and hire, hire a broker and start looking for buyers because then you're paying market value. And so um, it's important to have relationships and constantly be looking out there and, and talking to people. Yeah, finger on the pulse, right? It's, uh, it's a good point. Um, I'm curious in your perspective here, once again, you know, you're, you're doing acquisitions out there and you've done certainly a number of them. So um, in my experience, I found, you know, there's buyers at all different levels. And, you know, I might have a 10 million turnover company and then you're talking to some listed entity sometimes and I'll just say, look, we like the business, but it's just too small for us. It's it's kind of in some ways just not worth doing the transaction. After we do all the costs and the time and the blah, 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 blah. So I'm, I'm curious, do you have particular thresholds that you, you know, maybe use as a bit of a guideline for yourself when you're looking at opportunities? Absolutely. So we, we uh, for our businesses, it's a, at least a million dollars, a million and a half dollars in uh, 12 months training. EBITDA or profit um, yep. or higher. So up to 20 yep. million in EBITDA. Uh, if it's low, smaller than that, it, 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 it creates all kind of com- kinds of complexities for us in terms of due diligence and, and process we have to go through. And unless there's some real underlying asset there, like customer base that's not monetized or technology that's not monetized or some unique intellectual property that's not being you know, given to the market the right opportunity or doesn't have the scalability. It has to be something special. But in, in, in if you're looking at it from like a just a high level 50,000 foot view, you 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 um, are more likely to find a better deal that's worth more in terms of like 
top line revenue and profit than you are a small company. Because a small company will have has lots of risks associated with it. And I'll give you one example. If the company does less than a million in profit a year, chances are those numbers are adjusted without CEO pay. So they take out the CEO pay and they go, here's a million dollars. How much is the CEO earning? Oh, $350,000. Well, that's your real cost, right? So a million minus 350,000, that's your real profit because you, you need to hire someone to run that business, right? And so a lot of people don't understand that. And they go, oh, it's a million dollar profit business. I go, no, it's not. Yeah, you're spot on. I know I've seen that sort of stuff all the time out there. It's, you know, I'm constantly having these discussions with business owners, often because they've been told by some other advisor, oh, yeah, we can do this and bump up your numbers. And I keep saying to them, guys, acquirers aren't stupid people. They're usually quite smart people and they have very smart advisors. And by simply even trying that on, all you've done is basically paint yourself as somebody who's trying to get cute around the edges and play with the numbers. Like, you know, I, I have this bit of a saying that, you know, deals only get done when you've got a willing buyer, willing seller who can form a lot of trust in a short period of time. And, right. and you know, when you play around with numbers and get cute, the first thing you've just done is undermine trust. And so, you know, I just, it, it's, it's hard to explain that to people when they're thinking about, I've only got one shot at selling my business and I want to get as much money as I possibly can. <laughs> right. No, it's absolutely true. It, it's, it, there's not, um, you know, if you're dealing with a sophisticated buyer, they'll see through it. And it's also about being transparent. The, the, the faster you get to a point of full transparency, the faster you'll get a buyer who's willing to pay for it. Because they, 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 there's nothing, if they don't feel like they're being, being manipulated and they can see through all the numbers, then they're likely to continue talking to you and working with you. Um, and ultimately, you, you don't want to be in a position where you get sued. Like it, it, The problem with M&A is that even if you get through the, the sales process, you sold your company and you've, you've, you've masqueraded you know, the, 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 the infrastructure or your financials, eventually they're going to come to light. And you don't want to be in that situation. There's lots of stories like that with HP, Dell, there's, they've done a lot of deals like that for lots of money, for billions of dollars, where the revenues and profits just weren't there. They were masqueraded and, and you know, not told the truth. So you might be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as you said, it's, it's, if you're not found out later, that's what directors' warranties and indemnities are for, right? So you're not, you're not just off the hook. If you've done something dishonest or a bit dodgy, you do get found out. And in fact, I, I mean, I'm always saying to clients out there too, or anybody who listen, quite frankly, is that pretty much everything comes out in due diligence. <laughs> you know, my, right. my last guest, we were just talking about the analogy of feeling like an onion that you just get peeled layer by layer by layer until everything is on the table. Um, and, and, you know, deals are won and lost in due diligence, of course. But I'm, I'm curious, have you in, in your, um, you know, travels and, and looking at deals, have you had many deals where you've kind of gotten into that DD phase and then eventually said, hey, I'm out. This is not what we thought it was? Well, I had some interesting scenarios, not quite like that, but actually uh, to, the, to the benefit of the target company we were trying to buy. So we, we had a deal we struck uh, with, with, a buy, with a seller and uh, we went to see the company and everything checked out. It was great. The company did not misrepresent anything. That's great profile. The financials looked perfect. It was great. But the day we were supposed to meet to sign asset purchase agreements, we get a phone call or text message like four o'clock in the morning saying the deal's off with no explanation. Oh, wow. 
And so we started looking underneath the, you know, researching as to what happened. We, we learned that during the, the, the due diligence process, we inadvertently told them what we're going to do with the business. So they asked us, what are you going to do once you buy the company? We said, we're going to do this and this and this and this. And they said, how? Oh, why aren't we doing that? Why, we don't need you to, to, to do it for us. We're just going to do it ourselves. And so these guys went out and they did exactly what we said we were going to do. And so they implemented it. And now they're you know a bigger success than they were before we bought them. And so you know it's okay. We spent money on legal fees and they ended up covering those. So we're not out of pocket or anything. We had that provision in our contract. But it was a telling moment where we told ourselves and our team, no more these consultative engagements where we say, oh, this is how we're going to improve your business after we buy it. You know, you keep your mouth shut and, and get the deal done and then go tell them what you're going to do because now you own the company. And so you got to be really careful. Yeah, it's just, you know, just live and learn. But, it, you know, generally we only engage in companies that we have a very good understanding of their business. We probably have a relationship with them in the past. We've done business with them or they're a vendor of ours of some sort. So there's, we do a lot of diligence. Um, there are, there have been, there's one instance where I, I could say that we jumped out because we didn't like some of the numbers and, and we, we, we dug into them and we said, you know what, these numbers are not sustainable, uh, companies spending too much money in advertising and there's some negative cash flow that's being ma masqueraded a little bit with, um, uh, shared expenses from the parent company. And so that's also, you have to be something really careful about the parent company can say, oh, my accountant spends. 2% of their time in this small division, when in fact they're spending 90% of their time in that division. So you got to hire an accountant. Well, that's going to cost you $120,000 a year. And so those scenarios you got to be really careful about. But generally, you know, if you're dealing with a, a professional company that's run by a management team and hopefully there's some institutional investors behind them, you should be okay. If you do your due diligence, you're going to come out just fine at the end. Most people don't lie. So. Most people are honest and most people don't hide things and don't try to manipulate like 95% of people out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it's a good point. It's um, I think, I think sometimes um, in transactions, certainly at the smaller levels, when you've got business owners and maybe another private investor, there's this, you know, you know, people are, often those type of buyers, they're buying their next venture. It's quite personal to them even. It's um, and I, and I think, it can be hard for sometimes people to step back and just understand we're all everyone. They're all human beings. Everybody's, you know, like let's lower the emotions a little bit. They're not trying to screw you, or there's nobody evil on the other side. Everyone just has their own perspective, and it's the communication that helps get through those things and understand where everybody's sitting and where you need to go. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it, you're you're um, you have to find cadence with with the target company or whoever you're merging with or whatever, whoever you're doing business with. And you got, you got to feel that they understand you and, and you understand them. And ultimately if you're merging assets where you have uh, a company that has employees and those employees are going to come work for you, you want that to be a very smooth transition. And as, as, as um, much as businesses would like that to happen, a lot of times that doesn't work. Sometimes cultures clash. And it could be, you know, just the management style of, of the management team. It could be, you know, the, the prioritization that the company makes in terms of the product, you know, execution, how they do, how they do things. And you got to really understand those nuances 
before you get a deal done. You got you to go in there and talk to the employees. Like I, I actually talk to the engineers. I, I, I interview them because I want to know what's in their head. You know, they, they may say, I don't want to build products like this anymore. I hate this category. I, I want to do something totally different. Okay, then, then this is not a right match. You know, then we yeah, yeah. And so you want to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you a little, um, you know, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but just a question. You talk about interviewing the engineers and stuff like that. Um, one of the things that I, I think every business owner is worried about when they go to sell their company is is confidentiality or, you know, and, and, and kind of losing control of the process and, and the stream of information um, to their staff and their clients, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there's often this this tension here where I find buyers would love to speak to management and speak to them soon as soon as possible with as much detail as possible, and this resistance from business owners not because they don't want to share information but because they're trying not to lose control of the process and the information. And so I guess do, do, how do you play that tension? I mean, you know, how have you approached that in the past? So okay, that's a good question. So you 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 want to manage uh, as a seller. You want to understand your weakest point in your business. What if you lost X? What would happen, right? And so a lot of times that's a customer or some intellectual property. So if it's intellectual property, the best thing to do is don't show intellectual property until you are confident that that deal is going to get done. And you need to have your attorneys prepare very specific information or specific agreements that prior to seeing that intellectual property, like let's say it's code that you want to reveal. Like the other side wants to review your code and understand what does this code do? Well, you need to make sure that that code is really unique because if, if they look at the code and say, oh my God, this is the same as you know, another company, that, but you just sl slightly changed one sentence here, that's not unique, okay? So then you're, you're not gonna protect anything. But if you have something that's really unique, you wanna write that into your asset purchase agreements or into the at least the, the, uh, uh, the letter of intent or some sort of a uh, intellectual property protection document that says this specific area cannot be duplicated. And if it is, here's the penalty, how the penalty will be executed and all, all, all that stuff specific to that, 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 that uh, a particular risk. But more importantly is not to share information at all that hasn't, you know, it doesn't need to be shared until a point where you feel comfortable, confident, that a deal is going to get done at the structure that you expect. Because a lot of deals to get restructured during the process, you get one term sheet in the beginning, and then it gets retraded down. Valuation goes up, structure goes changes. Oh, we saw this. We don't think it's worth that much. That's almost almost 90% of the times what happens. And so seller beware of, of companies who retrade their, their, their offers. We don't do that, but a lot of companies do. And so um, that's a risk. And then as a buyer, same thing. Are you being handed something that's not unique? And, uh, you know, what are you agreeing to? Are you agreeing to something that you already do and this company happens to own some derivative of it and they're going to claim that you stole it from them? Like, yeah, you gotta, you got to be careful in those scenarios. So. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think your you comment there, I think, when the, with about the the – penalty clauses and things like that. I think a lot of regular business owners 
would be scared with that option because they say, yeah, okay, but they, they copied our stuff and they've run off with it. But to do anything about it, I need to sue them. I need to go through this process. It'll take years. It's going to be expensive. So they're trying to think, well, how can I avoid that in the first place? And and I think, you know, there are, are obviously some good mechanisms that people can use, um, particularly when you're talking about stuff like code. Um, you know, I think on a, on a recent deal that we did, um, it was a SaaS company and, and they basically, the vendors, our clients had said, well, we're not showing you the code until the absolute last minute. It is the last thing we do. And fundamentally, we're going to explain stuff to you. We're going to talk you through our tech stack. We're going to talk to, you know, give you, give your tech guys enough information so they know what they're dealing with. But the code review doesn't come until we've literally agreed some terms. We've agreed broad prices. Yes, you have a get out of jail free, you know, clause if you read the code and you think we've stolen it or something, we've done something wrong. But kind of it was that last minute, it's a black box until the deal is agreed fundamentally. Right. Um, right. And it, do, do you see those sort of approaches being used um, in, in yeah. deals as well? Well, that's what I was saying earlier is that you, you wait till last minute until you feel confident deal is going to get done. And then you reveal your your goods and say, here's what you're really buying. Um, so that that is absolutely the right way to go. And you, you need to hold that. You need That's your last thing, right? That's your. You know, that's your that's your secret sauce. And you, you, you don't want that you know, shown to anyone until you're 100% confident it's going to get done. Um, and do your diligence on the buyer. You know, if it's a financial buyer, like a private equity firm, do they have a history of doing this to, to their target companies, right? Yep. Research that. Go online, see what, talk to, uh, you know, when, when we're buying a company, I always tell my target companies to call another company that we bought and talk to the management teams and the investors and ask them how we did and, and they need to feel comfortable that these guys are for real. They're not going to steal anything from me. They're not going to retrade their offer. And then it's then they're they're more open to giving you information because it's also you have to have the reputation in the market that you don't do things like this. And and it, it, you know if you do have that reputation, it's going to catch up with you. And and someone is going to talk about it. And then they, no one's going to want to do business with you. And so um, you know. It, you got to you got to be careful. You know, unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, this space is not very well vetted. In other words, you know, anyone can make an offer to buy a company, and you don't even know if they have money in the bank. And so, yeah, absolutely, they could be raising money in the back of the transaction. They could be doing a reverse merger into a publicly traded shell. It could be an offshore fund that you're not supposed to be doing business with. It, 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 lots of players out there who pretend they're buyers and they're not real buyers. And so um, you got to weed them out and know, and know who you're talking to. That's how you get, that's how you get it off. If you're talking to the wrong buyer, they can take you through the process and get all this intellectual property. And at the end of the day, they'll just decide to leave and say, I don't want to buy your company anymore because I got everything. Else. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I guess another reason to have a good deal team around you to, to help you with those perspectives and understand the risks. Um, Another question I just kind of wanted to throw out there, you know, without getting, once again, too technical or in the weeds here, but, you know, one of the big topics I think a lot of business owners hear about is, is earnouts in a deal structure. And I'm just curious about your perspective. Have you used them, seen them? Do you have a general view? Yeah. Yeah. So earnouts can come in different flavors. It can be based on 
performance of revenue, profitability, pro product launches, contracts, you know, uh, tenure, whatever, whatever you agree on. Um, we tend not to do them because they're complicated and they're a, a, a nuisance in negotiating process, like for us. Now, it's not for many other companies. A lot of companies like them. Um, we, we, we tend to do it as an insurance against potential risks. And so uh, we did a deal once where maybe 5% or 10% of the value was put in escrow and it was uh, paid out every quarter or every six months based on, um, I think it was related to the, the, the churn rate of the subscriber. So if, if the churn rate was above certain threshold, we said we're going to keep this money in the, in the escrow account. If it was a below it or above it, I don't remember what the terms are, then then we would not. And so that gave us a little bit of insurance that that we're getting a good deal. But it was not a big percentage of the total value of the business. Um, you, you, you can you can you need to be as a seller, you need to be concerned of whether or not you are in control of the outcome related to earning that earnout. So, for instance, someone says, a buyer says, I'm going to give you $10 million of that 3 million is going to be in an earn out for the next three years if you guys hit these metrics, like your revenue numbers. Well, you're not going to own the company after the transaction is completed. Who decides on the budget? Who decides on marketing spend? If they cut your marketing spend, your revenue is not going to hit, then how are you going to earn your earn out? And so I think statistically, like 30 or 40% of earn outs are never earned. In terms of MA, I don't know the exact number, but a big percentage is not earned because of those reasons. Yeah, it's funny. I have a, a friend of mine who's uh, an attorney. He he said he was saying to me that eighty percent of all the court cases around MA, in his his experience relate to earnouts. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, you know, and yeah, you know, it's the old thing. Oh, we're going to measure on profit, yeah, but then right at the end of the financial year, we're going to hit you with a corporate charge that wipes out your EBIT. <laughs> right. You know, exactly. it's it's. All, all these sort of things that are quite kind of underhanded. It's, I mean, look, and that's not to say all buyers are like that. I think this is back to your point. Do your homework on your buyers and see how they normally deal and do and trade and do business because, you know, there are people out there who play those sort of games. But and and I've had plenty of people guests on this show that have walked away from earnouts because they've just said this is toxic and impossible. Um, having said that, though, I've had plenty of guests on here who've walked away saying, "Do you know what?" Like. The relationship, I felt good with these guys. I felt like this was a good fit. They told me they were going to do X. They measured me on that, and and it all got delivered, and I got my full earn out. You know, it's right. um, so I don't think I, I I wouldn't want anyone to walk away from this, uh, you know, hearing this episode and thinking that there's a silver bullet or the one solution because there's so many different ways to slice and dice a deal. You just got to kind of work out all the different variables and what's right for you, I guess. Well, the the, the, the fundamental way to look at this is. If you're going to measure your your business, say you have a SaaS company, you have recurring revenue, and you're growing year over year, okay? You can if you can value this business based on its present value, meaning what it is worth today, and what it will be worth a year from now, right? And let's say that your buyer is willing to pay you for both, but you should at least earn what it is worth today, today, and what it is worth in the future. That's your earnout. And if those numbers make sense to you as an individual, meaning you're not going to earn that money on your own anyway in the next 12 months, right? If you're being offered that kind of, that's, that's a low valuation, you shouldn't do that deal. But if they're giving you a lot of money that you would have not earned in the next, let's say, five to 10 years, that's probably a good deal. 
and then the 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 earnout portion of the transaction is built on what it will be in the future and if you can attain these goals right so you're doing really well and you're going to continue to grow so if you break it down this way then you're more likely to have a good outcome and if you don't earn that earnout for whatever reason then you still had a good deal you're not out of pocket you're not losing you're, you're still going to win and uh, you know it's the risk of doing a deal like that a lot of buyers particularly uh, just real quick, a lot of buyers in, in a finan financial buyers, what they do is they beef up the valuation with lots of tricky moves in terms of how they structure the, the value of the deal. And it looks like a good deal because the valuation is set really high. And when you start breaking it down, it really isn't. When you look at cash at closing, it's a much, much smaller number. And we compete with that a lot because we go to a buyer and say, here's our offer. And they go, oh, I've got this other offer somewhere else. But when you ask him, what does that offer look like? And it's like 80% earn out and 20% cash at closing, right? And so, yeah. Yeah, it's not apples to comparing apples with apples, right? I, I, I think probably a piece of advice I'd be giving business owners here as well is that um, you know, put, put yourself in the shoes of the buyer for a moment. Try to look at the deal from their perspective. And, you know, if you're making lots of speculative promises, I mean, earnouts are a risk mitigation tool. <laughs> the more speculative your promises and, and you know, how much you're sprouting the, the opportunity for the future that's not proven, well, the more they're going to question that and want to put some, you know, risk management uh, tools around it. And the earnout just happens to be one of those tools that gets used fairly often. <laughs> right. And, and I'll tell you, there's lots of options for sellers, owners of businesses to keep the equity of their company, not sell their company and still take money out of their business. It's called dividend recap. And you go and borrow money against your company based on some ratio that the bank's willing to give you. It could be two times EBITDA or three times EBITDA. Pull that money out, put it in your pocket, pay it. Your, your you know payment your obligation interest payments as you're supposed to but keep your equity if you believe your business is growing and you don't want to accept anything from a buyer that's south of some valuation you have in your mind just don't sell borrow against the equity against the asset and then keep your equity and a lot of business owners don't understand it's available to them they don't need to sell their equity in fact I'm against selling equity at, at any time. I think that you should always borrow and don't sell your equity. It's expensive, right? Equity is expensive. Debt's yeah. usually a lot cheaper. It's, yeah, Lucky. if you're looking to grow and build and, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Gary, I'm, I'm cognizant of time here and I, I appreciate how generous you've been with yours. Um, maybe I can just ask you one sort of last question I think that's that I, I, I'm certainly interested about. I'm, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will be too. You know, you've started companies, you've gone out there and you've built them and you've done the organic stuff and you've obviously had success and you've grown to a point now where you can acquire and other businesses and grow grow using a different model somewhat. I'm kind of a little curious about your journey as the, as the human, as the leader here, because, you know, I'd, I'd say the way you spent your time in those earlier businesses and the things you were doing each day is probably very different to how you spend your time today. And so I'm just... I'm curious about what that journey was like for you and, and were there any kind of real hurdles or, or you know, it's a, clearly even a different set of skills, right? So I'm just, just curious about what your journey was like. 
Yeah, you learn a lot in terms of managing people. You know, one the the biggest company I've had, uh, uh, you know, that I've run had a couple thousand employees at at, at uh, you know at one time, and so managing employees and dealing with uh, human resources issues is a fairly you know involved undertaking as a CEO. And the one thing you can you can you need to learn as you evolve as a leader is how to not micromanage your management team, how to ask the right questions, meaning what you want them to accomplish and, and, and why, as opposed to giving them incremental tasks and telling them how to accomplish those, you know, the big, the big task, right? Because if you're doing that, you're not, they're not managers, right? Yeah. And you're not being a CEO, you're just doing their work for them. And so either get rid of them and do their work yourself or hire people who are competent and know how to do what they've been asked to do and give them KPIs that they got they have to hit. And so I've learned how to do that. And now that, that, that I'm, when I hire people for my companies and, and, you know, any transaction or acquisitions that we do, we only look for people that know how to take direction, that know how to execute, don't need micromanagement and will come forward with information as opposed to you asking them constantly what's going on and what, why is this not working? And if you're engaged in that type of management style, you have the wrong team and you're not asking the right questions. And so I've learned that. And I, and I, and I tell you, that's the, the most valuable thing I've learned is, is how to manage expectations because it's, it's the, the success and failure of every business. Full yeah. stop. Yeah, if brilliant. You know how to do that, Bad things will happen to every company. I've had bad things happen. I had collapses and, and bankruptcies and, 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 and financings that didn't go through, like all those things. You, you have to be able to talk about them and tell your investors why something is not working. If something failed, just say, it, say why and let it out of your system because if you hide it and you try to play games, it's all going to come out at the end. So. Yeah, it's great advice, isn't it? Because, you know, once again, it's back to this issue of almost like due diligence and, and I was saying to our clients is just you just need to be open and transparent and honest. And But also, like in my experience, buyers don't expect you to have the perfect business. They actually expect that you've had problems. And right. so really what they're looking for is that you've got enough um, intellectual capacity, I guess, but enough foresight to say, be able to say, hey, we've had these issues or we've got this particular issue. Here's how we're thinking about resolving this. We've got a number of solutions we're looking at. You know, as the buyer, you'll obviously make a choice on what you want to do, but here's how we're, this is our thinking. You know, it's, it's, it's the ability to think and respond to problems, not that you've never had them. And, and, and also, I mean, there's a third alternative is not knowing how to do it and telling people that you don't know, right? And so I always, I ask my management team that sometimes when they get to a, a bind and I say, do you not know how to deal with this problem? Because if you don't, I'll bring someone in who does. And it's not to replace you, it's to help you. And so I, I say that to my to my boards and my investors. And I, I, I say, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but if, if, I, if I don't know how to do it, I'll say, I don't know how to do it and don't expect me to do it because I don't know how to do it. And so uh, you have to know your, your capacity that not everyone is capable of everything. Like we're not, CEOs are not some Superman out there that know how to execute on every aspect of the organization. Sometimes you come to, into a corner and, and you know you may not have an answer, and I and I think it's important to to leverage your your contacts, your relationships, 
peers and other people and bring them into the equation and ask the questions early on, not when it's, you know, collapse time, but before that, right? So, so you know, if you don't know how to do it. Yeah, no, and I think, I think that speaks a lot to the type of culture you obviously drive in your organizations that, you, you know, you want it to be a safe enough environment where people can put their hand up and go, I, I don't know the answer to this, or I'm raising an issue, I don't have a solution, I'm looking for support, you know, it's, I, I think traditionally I've certainly seen myself in a lot of, you know, corporate scenarios where there's a culture of people don't want to admit uh, weaknesses or, or, you know, not having a solution for fear of some kind of retribution or some sort of penalty. So, you know, it's, it's certainly not the culture I'd want to work in and it's, you know, it's certainly not the sort of culture that solves problems and helps growth. Yeah, you don't you don't want to put yourself, your, your team in that situation because if, if you do that, they just won't tell you the truth. If they, that's what's going to happen. They're going to keep lying to you. Like everything is great. Nothing is broken, right? And so what, what I try to do is I, I always, I feel like in, in my management companies where there's tension being built, I can feel it. And I, I know when, when something is not working and I can feel the tension. And I break that tension by asking a very simple question. Are you not able to get this done on time? And they'll say, you know what? I don't think I can. And my answer to that is, let's not do it then. <laughs> you know, if it's not if it's not working, how about we just don't do it? Because it's not working. The other resources, you, you seem to be frustrated. Let's have you focus on something else. And suddenly that tension is gone. Because now we've solved the most fundamental problem, which is we don't know how to do something, right? And so uh, you re- revisit that that opportunity later in the cycle or push it down, you know, priority or something else. Because in, in any com- most companies have multiple projects, multiple priorities, multiple products. They're not selling one thing and it's not, you know, day over if this project doesn't get done, right? You can do something else. And so, but if, but if, if, if the attitude of management and CEO and the board is like, Oh, this has to be done. Otherwise, you know, it was packing and was going home. Then there's going to be tension, and people are going to quit, and then they're going to be frustrated. And so, well, and geez, haven't we just come full circle on those uh, early comments about Elon Musk? It's, uh, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. honestly, I just keep reading the the press about Twitter and just going, man, what is going on over there? <laughs> Yeah, he's you know he's he's turned us into a chaotic environment, and I and I think it's going to hurt him and his other businesses in in a big way. I, I he's making a lot of mistakes. He's not wrong in so many ways in terms of creating a, a profitable business and making it more technology driven and and turn it into a more you know Web three centric organization. That I don't disagree with, but I disagree with the tactic tactics he's deploying. I think most. CEOs would say the same. You don't just fire people like this. You don't tell them one day they need to leave and the next day a hundred thousand dollar bonus if you stick around. Like, come on, man. Like this is not, yeah. this is not cool. And and these are not stupid people. These are engineers from Silicon Valley. Probably have spent a lot of time and tenure at the company, have delivered a lot of value and, and you're throwing them out on the street. That's just not cool. I think it's a mistake. Yeah, I'd look. T- totally agree. It reminds me very much of some advice that a, uh, a mentor of mine gave me once is that it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And at the end of the day, you know, I think it's, it's a great principle to, uh, to carry with us as we're going through and thinking about these decisions and, you know, different approaches we want to take. So, um, yeah. 
Kerry, I think that's probably probably about all we've got time for today. I'm, I, I, we've probably shot over even, so I, I really do appreciate you you coming on and and just sharing your insights with us. It's it's been fascinating hearing about your journey, and um, you know I know that you're going to be helping a lot of other business owners out there. So thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For anybody listening, if you would like uh, more information, um, I'm going to put some uh, links into the show notes for this so that um, you can certainly check out Gary and uh, on LinkedIn as well as his various different companies. Um, if there's any more information you'd like to know, please reach out. We're very happy to sort of join the dots here. Um, I, I've just gotten so much out of this episode. I'm sure you have too. And uh, please join us for the next episode of the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.